1: We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey.
2: This would be an okay time for questions unless any of you...
3: Yeah, we'll start right here. I can bring you the mic. Hi, so um, I've been a writer of like short stories, novels, and nonfiction. And so now I'm sort of transitioning into being interested in scripts and um, looking into acting and film, which I never thought I would. And um, one of the things I'm finding, especially with social media, is that it's just saturated. There's just so many people wanting to create art. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit in terms of what's relevant, because sometimes what you might be doing for fun or to find your voice is totally not something anybody needs to see. (laughs) And, um, And I feel like there's also some transitioning in Hollywood, some need of certain kinds of stories that could be healing. And it just seems like there's, there's a, a, a change. And I'm wondering if you can speak to like content and what, what the kind of pulse or where a story should be coming from maybe um, rather than just let me stand out, let me get the money, let me get the financing. But like what stories are
1: relevant to be told right now? Does that make sense? I think you should write what you want to write, what's important to you. Just write it. That worrying about the market, worrying about who might like it, worrying about all that stuff can be such a profound distraction that you end up not writing and not using your voice. Um, It might not sell. It might not make an impact. It might not change the world. But as a writer, I think you have to tell your story. You're... I just really, really believe that. And Meg probably has a different point of view. You know, As a professional writer, I have to do things a little differently, right? I do have a boss, somebody who's paying me. I have to sort of take notes and do all that stuff. But when I write my own projects that are mine, uh, if I let myself worry about the market or who's going to buy it, I, I'll stop writing.
0: I mean, I I don't know exactly if this answers your question, so we can have more of a dialogue about it, but, like, I had two thoughts come into my head. The first is, my son is 18. I don't think he's here. (laughs) And uh, he's approaching this very, very differently than I would have at 20-whatever. I mean, he's approaching much earlier than I did. Whereas, at 18, they are making shit and putting it up. They're making it, putting it up, putting it up, putting it up. It's so fucking daring. Like, it blows my mind. Like, he built a spaceship in our garage and filmed his two buddies blowing up this spaceship, basically. He's just gonna cut it and put it up. And he is trolling all the time, looking at everything that everybody else is doing. And sometimes he walks into my room and goes, oh my God, this guy was so good, I could never make anything as good, I might as well stop. And I'm like, stop looking at those, stop it. That's a terrible idea, stop looking at those. And sometimes he walks in and he's like, hey, this guy got into NYU and his short sucks. And I'm like, well, keep looking at those, see? Like, I, like there's such it's such a fucking knife edge, the way they're doing it now, of the daring just putting it out there. But you know what, as long as you're making stuff, and as long as watching that stuff doesn't stop you, that's the way they're doing it. And I think they're gonna become their own specific kinds of filmmakers, and they're open, and they're, it, it's a wonderful, amazing new thing that they're doing. He's 18, so I don't know if he's too worried about the meaning and the, you know, the social context of the, of his short that he's putting out there about the two guys in the spaceship. No, he thinks it's fucking funny, right? He did a whole short the other day with his friends about two guys fighting over a banana. Like he thinks it's funny. Right.
1: He. Did it what is he funny. To do.
0: And they're yeah. having fun, right? And he's learning filmmaking. He's learning sound. He's a, so there's a lot of reasons to do things that aren't. Um, thinking about that, and yet are incredibly brave and daring, right? And then the other thing I think of in terms of the business of it, um, they are not in the, I'm going to say something obvious that you know, but just to give context, they are not anywhere within the sphere of caring about or thinking their job is to care about what the world needs. That is not why anybody in that building is working there. Their job is to make money. (laughs) Period. Which means get a great show. Now, you can make money because your shows are getting Emmys and they're getting really talked about, and so it's got great word of mouth, and it's this filmmaker who's a great artist. But I promise you, the reason they're doing all of that is to make money. Yes, the executives themselves individually want to be the one to find the great artist and I'm not saying the people within the system aren't good people and want to do higher level things and push people. They do. Right? They're not automatrons. They're not evil minions. But they're in a company that's, you know, they want to make a movie that makes a billion dollars and wins the Academy Award. They want to do all that. When you want to do something to push or to heal or to bring people back together or whatever you want to do, that is art. Right? And hopefully, that's the philosophical, like we just talked about in the last thing, that's a philosophical goal. That's not story. That's not an emotional thematic. An issue is not a story. Right? An issue is an issue. What is the story that I can pull that issue out, but the story of humanity is still there? Like, you're pushing, you're, and, which is circling back to what Lorian said. You have to do what you want to do and hope that it connects and hope that they will, but it has enough sugar if it don't have any sugar they ain't not making it because that does not sell tickets like so I think a lot about the sugar what are the set pieces what is what is the hook what's the genre you know why you have to ask yourself why would people tune into this tv show every week why would they binge it what's inside of it so there might be a genre hooky thing murder mystery, whatever, right? Or it might be so emotionally gripping that they just need to, you know, I'm watching Julia, not because I love cooking or the period, I mean, I like the period, but I'm watching because I love her. I love her character so much and how she's approaching life, how she's trying to stay optimistic that I just want to be with her every week. That's literally it, right? That's a lot depend on your actress, so that's a hard thing to depend your show on, but yes, do it, but it's a fucking climb straight up
1: with your repelling
0: right It's hard it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it but because that's exactly everybody breaks why it,
1: you should be doing what you love right because when you're and i don't and I don't mean just whatever you want. your point about the sugar is absolutely right, but you should be able to. If you're gonna be working with a studio who's giving you notes and beating you down about it and like the market and this and this, you have to be able to come back to, I I am committed to working on this. I'm gonna spend the next five years of my life on this TV show, working with you, dealing with all of this, so I have to believe in it. And so that
0: you have artistic boundaries.
2: Often our brain wants to protect us from writing because we're scared of it often, but I sometimes think those questions are just excuses to not write. So I, I would challenge you, this may not be the case, But if you're asking big questions about the fate of your project or what will this do, channel that anxiety into your character and just get to the page. That's what I think. Just write it. Yeah, just write it. I've
0: had other projects like that. My manager literally told me that if I had asked him should I write the script that I wrote that got me him, he would have said no.
1: But it's not going to not go anywhere. You're going to learn so much from it to get you to the next project. Maybe someone reads that and gets excited about you and says, oh, hey, I have this other project or... There's nothing wasted in writing and finishing something. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of projects. I call it my script graveyard. Yeah. They may not be here to get made. They
0: may be here to teach you something and get you to the next step. That's why they're the coming. The thing
2: that will guarantee you to not learn is to not write. So that's like... Do, the, it, yeah. do it, do it, right. do it, I saw a hand over here. Oh, yeah. This, this question could be answered broadly, but I was wondering specifically with you guys. When you guys write, are you writing in words? Are you writing in scenes or memories or experiences? What is... Because words always seem like a weird medium when when writers like you guys are always talking about, you know, it's pictures, it's images. How do you write?
0: I write... I write... I see images uh, that I then write down. Does that make sense? So I will literally... And every writer is different, by the way. So I will see a coffee shop and... I see how busy it is and then the door opens and Dave walks in and then I'm like, where is Dave going? Oh, Dave's going to the corner because Beth's there and oh, Beth's pretty mad. And then what does Beth say? So it's almost like writing down my dream. Does that make sense? As if I'm dreaming in real time. It's lucid dreaming. For me, it's lucid dreaming. And I, if my, uh, if my other part of my brain comes in too heavy, the dream stops. And it withers because the logic brain is like, well, except Beth, she wouldn't even be there, dummy, because Beth, why do, we don't even know why Beth is mad. Why is Beth so mad? Blah, blah, blah. And then it, it's like, right? There's a time for that brain to come in, for sure, when you're trying to now take this lump and carve it out and go deeper and get, look at your blind spots. And it serves a very good function, but just not early for me. I, I have to just dream it out and uh, let that part of me talk.
1: So that's my way. Same. Ah. I mean, I, I go into a place and I just sort of watch and document and listen and write down whatever everybody says and yeah. And then sometimes though I'm writing down what everybody says and it's like three pages later I'm like, nothing is happening. They're just talking. I'm just learning about them. Great, I learned something about these two characters and how they fight. But still, nothing has happened. Nobody wants anything. The only conflict is who left the garbage on the porch. So I've learned a lot about my characters then, so then I'm like, okay, well now I need to figure out what, what does that mean? I'm going to take them put them somewhere else and give them a different problem. So part of it is trying to push the, push it forward, but I just document I
0: mean, what happens with your brain eventually, the more notes you get and the more you write and the more you, your brain starts to dream in a different way in that it's still a dream, but it's gotten so many notes about being active in behavior and what's the camera scene and what actors want and blah, 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 that it just starts to naturally do that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and it can do it quicker and more concisely, and it's, it's jumping to things that you know are filmic, right? But I'm not having to think that because it's almost like when you play the piano and you start and you're like C, D, and you have to do chords over and over until you can play and you're not even thinking about what your fingers are doing because as soon as you think about what your fingers are doing, they can't do it, right? Or dancing, right? Like I used to be a dancer, and God help you if you ever actually think about what you're doing because now you're a beat behind, right? Writing can become the same thing, where all of that stuff you've learned and all those drafts and that craft is now just coming up and supporting you as you go but that takes quantity that just takes a lot of pages a lot of scripts a lot of work to get that transfer over for the right brain to know to do that do you see what I'm saying like it's it generally doesn't happen when you've just written one version of one script you've learned a lot but where is the other five scripts written to, 3 times each. Now the brain is starting to create pathways, literal pathways in your you start brain. Start to
1: feel it. You start to get to a it's certain like place music. in the script and you're like, "Oh, I, this is we're going downhill now." Yeah, Something you're becoming fluent in a language,
0: right? Like if you when you start to learn a language, right? But when you become fluent, you start to dream in that language. That can happen with storytelling. Like you start to dream at a different level. Right. It doesn't mean you still don't get stupid notes where you're like, dang it, that's a 101 note. Like, I still get, she has no agency,
2: and I'm like, ah! <laughs> right? Right? Uh, any other questions?
3: My name is Reese, and I don't know about anybody else here, but I've literally never written like a long feature. I've just done shorts and that kind of thing. So is there really a format to writing a feature as opposed to the format when you're writing a short. Like, How do you really go about, because there's so many more scenes in a feature, so when you're doing a short, it's gonna be like, like, the one I did recently it was like three scenes. So I could just write all of them and then just start writing them. Like, Have ideas for all of them and then start writing them. But it's harder when it's a feature to have an idea for every single scene before you start writing. Well, I mean, there's
0: different versions. Like, one is you don't worry about it before you start writing. You just barf it out, let it go, go, and go, and go, and see where it goes, right? You just dream it and see where it goes and realize, oh, I started with this idea, and it's not even that idea anymore. Which means
1: you just start writing and documenting. Oh, these characters are talking for three pages about the garbage, and oh, God, a spaceship just landed, and wait, no, it's not a spaceship, it's a bus, and you just keep, like,
0: going. I mean, you can do that, and just so your brain knows, it has that capacity. There's a lot in there, more than you even know. Um... But I would say, um, for where you are, if it was me, I would probably find a course nearby or online or whatever, probably the Extension, wherever, I don't know, we can talk to you. I would take a Screenwriting 101 class just to learn the basics, in terms of the toolbox for your brain to hold onto. So the basics of a three-act structure and how it moves and works, I'm not saying you have to do three acts, but you kind of need to know it to break it. Do you know what I'm saying? So, and once your brain starts to see there's the introduction of a character. Who are they? What's their world? What do they think about themselves? What do they think about their world? Right? Any rules of that world, right? Then there's an inciting incident. That's about ten pages in. Then there's an end of act, which is the universe going knock, 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 want to wake up? Knock, 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 want to wake up? There's a end of act one, which is 25 pages in, which is now you've got to set the engine of the whole movie. What do they want? How badly, they have to want it more than life itself. You have to make me and the audience want it, right? What's in conflict to them, right? All the engine pieces, and we can talk about what those engine pieces are if you're interested. And now that engine, uh, it never will in the first couple of drafts, but what you hope is it propels you to three acts. That one engine is so narratively that we're like, holy shit. Those scenes, when you're at Pixar or any place or a TV show where you've got a big room of writers and everybody's kind of like, and everybody's just throwing out ideas and you're like, and all of a sudden, that idea goes with that idea, goes with that idea, and it goes, and everybody starts throwing, throwing, throwing. Oh, and then this could happen and that could happen. Oh my God, what if this happened? Oh my God, what if the dog died? Oh my God, you think the dog could die? And then it just goes. You're like, there it is. If you have trouble getting scenes to come into your mind, your engine is broken. Once you get your engine, and it's hard to get an engine, it's why you have to do so many drafts. Once your engine really starts cooking, those scenes will just start like popcorn, right? And then you're trying to get the popcorn to the midpoint to have another big shift to get the popcorn now amping up. Holy shit, it's not in a popcorn maker, it's a mountain, whatever, this metaphor's going nowhere. And then. You know, and you just start to learn this is the fun in games, two A and two B is now it's getting really fucking hard. End of Act Two, they wake up, bang. Whatever you set up in Act One, they wake up from now. And now they're gonna go and prove it that they changed. And once you start to understand this basic character movement, it's you're just it's you actually are suddenly like, oh my God, I don't have enough room. Right Where you're standing, which I totally see, the mountain you're looking at, which is, oh my God, that's so much. But once you start to get the container you have to sit in and you get that engine, it's gonna be short. To get Joy and Inside Out to move from what I've convinced the audience of, which is do not let sadness touch those core memories. Right? Act one of Inside Out is a thesis to prove to the audience that they need to believe that the worst thing that could happen to Riley is that sadness touches those core memories. I have to make you believe that. So that at the end of act two, I can wake you up to, oh no, it's the opposite, shit. So now I have to prove that I've woken up, get her back, do the opposite action, right? And once you get those poles, your scenes are trying to get your character from here to here and it should be huge so that you look at the whole world differently by the end. Right? So. You just have to start to get that basic structure for a feature down, or if it's a TV show, what is the structure of a pilot? How do they work, right? What do they need for their engines to go off, right? It's different. Um, So I would take a class just to teach your brain that and take some practice runs at it. Um, So that in that you have somebody reading like well this midpoint isn't strong enough because of this or whatever right and just know that even when you're a pro and you've done it a million times you're still back where you are right now like oh my god this engine doesn't work what are these scenes does anybody have any
1: ideas because our engine doesn't work also watch movies and break them down right I think you can find anywhere three act structure on the internet right like the inciting incident that you know at beginning of act one pick some of your favorite movies or least favorite movies you know those are sometimes easier to look at because you're not emotionally attached to them or what happens with the character and just sort of break it down teach yourself structure what are they doing here what are they doing here you know and then the minute marks are the pages right so you can literally
0: look at your counter and be like, we're at the 10-minute mark. Where's the inciting incident? There it is. And if you pick your three favorite movies of all time, not good movies, your fa- three favorite that you've watched 10 times, right? Like some my, well, Listen, one of mine is somewhere in time, just to set the bar. Okay? One of mine is overboard. Right. So we're good. It's that movie that speaks to you. and you watch three of them, you're going to start to see your personal thematic. You're going to start to see similarities of things that the antagonists you love. And all that stuff can start to help feed you. And look at Look at the main character and how they're introduced and where are they on the structure points. Just write it down. And you're gonna start to see patterns happen. You can do this with actors, by the way. If you're stuck in your script and you're like, who is the big movie star that would be the perfect casting for this, and let's say it's Tom Cruise. Go watch three to five Tom Cruise movies and track where he is on the page counts on the structure, you're gonna see the exact same thing happening over and over and over. Because he has a thematic that he's working out. He's always within a system, he's the best in it, then he gets kicked out because he figured out they're corrupt, and now he has to bring them down, right? So it's, it's a great writing exercise to go, okay, that's his theme, that's his pattern, put it on your script. What are you missing, right? Oh my God, I don't have this midpoint where every time, midpoints generally don't line up, but I don't have this moment where he wakes up I haven't put enough antagonism against him. Like, he's always like the little man against the giant machine, or whatever. So you can, that's another trick and exercise you can do um, to help you uh, see it, right, or, or come up with scenes.
2: I think just know, too, that on your first pass, it's always that shitty first draft. If, if it helps trade a scriptment, well, not a scriptment, but if you're going through your script and you're stuck on a scene, Sometimes it just means something will happen here and then you move on to the next scene and just power through, especially on that first draft, because if not, you'll quit, I think. I don't know if you would agree, but.
0: Yeah, I mean, I always, and whenever I get stuck, I always think of the Coen brothers who would just try to outdo each other on the craziest, most fun thing that could happen mm-hmm. next and yeah. not worry about any of it. And yeah. that's fun too, right? That's, we want to do this to have fun,
2: right? Any other questions? Great, I'll run back here and then say your name as well.
0: Hey everyone, so the new version of Final Draft, Final Draft 13, is out, and you know, the question's going around. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to
1: buy or upgrade? And our answer is yes. So I recently got notes on a pilot, and I want to see how it works in my rewrite to move a couple of scenes. And usually what I do is, you know, cut and paste, uh, which works out sometimes, but mostly it means I lose text because I move so quickly but the new version of Final Draft has this cool feature called Navigator 2.0 where you can actually just move scenes around right in your script so without losing something I can see what's working what I'm missing or what needs to be rewritten or you know if I have to lose the scene altogether. But it's really really helpful and what's most important to me about this is that I'm not losing anything. Woohoo!
0: Yes. I am laying out a new project and I want to card it and I can now do that inside of Final Draft and it's now a super easy way. You can take those cards and then make them into an outline with a simple drag and drop. So it's just a great way to see the larger story that you're writing and get down the details, track characters. I just love it. And for our emerging writers, a great new feature is final draft lets you set writing goals like page count or timed writing sprints, which is super cool.
1: So uh, we think the new version is really worth uh, investing in. So you can head over to finaldraftcom slash products to get the new version with a discount code of screen FD for 25% off. You should check it out.
0: That's screen FD S C R E E N F D.
2: How you doing? Uh, my name is Johnny. Um, so I I think I'm pretty good at writing shorts and everything like that. Um, writing features, I feel like I fall short in my ending. I don't think it's strong enough. I feel like I'm Stephen King. Um, it's just it just feels weak and everything. Any suggestions?
1: I kind of want to know what what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, what your story is, right? Is it? Um, is your character clearly learning something by the end of the movie? Mm -hmm. And have they put into practice what they learned, like what Meg was saying, like Joy learns that sadness has to touch the core memories and now the third act is her doing the work of getting sadness up there, not just physically, but emotionally, sort of like reorganizing her whole belief system. Mm -hmm. Are you paying that off in a third act?
0: Yeah, is it, is it, is your question, are the notes you're getting back about your third act that people aren't emotionally feeling it's big enough? They're not caring? Or is it literally, it's not, as a story, the storytelling, the the story itself isn't big enough, like it's too small, the action?
2: I feel like the action is too small, or just knowing, like, a strong, uh, knowing exactly what my ending is, you know? I think that's maybe what it is.
0: So my way of I approach endings, and everybody's different, is the end of act two is the character. I see character movement as a person coming to consciousness. Right. They're blind. Here's the trick. You have to make your audience blind in act one. Even if they came in conscious, you have to blind them. right? Because if you want them to follow this character and be with this character emotionally, so that could be why your endings don't work, is because that we, I'm ahead of your character. Right? So let's say you've done, every, every note always goes back to Act 1, but let's assume it doesn't. Um, uh, uh, you've blinded me, you've convinced me of something, you, I want what the character wants. It could be that the want isn't strong enough, and so that when they're either denying it at the end or getting it, I feel like triumphant satisfaction of that. So is the want driving us enough? right? And then through by the end of Act 2, they're waking up right, to the wrongheadedness of that want or the destruction they've caused or whatever, if they're transformative characters, and if they're not, that's another bucket of fish. But they're waking up and they're realizing, oh, shit, I caused all this. I have to, right? If they're not a transformative character, they're, they're having to believe in themselves again. What they have, to, so that's the moment of change, end of act two. That's the moment of, oh, I've hit the bottom. You've had to beat them up in act two. You've just beaten them up to wake them up. Because if you think about it, when you've changed, it's probably been you know life kicking in the head, right? So that's the other problem. Have you really beat them up enough? Act three is proving what th- that they will do what they now know. So you have to make it, what they have to do in act three should be impossible. Now, that could be emotionally impossible you spent the whole movie, everybody afraid of this mother. And this character's gonna walk up and say it. And we should all be like,
2: oh my
4: God, oh he's gonna do it,
0: oh my God. Like it can be just emotionally feel huge and impossible or it can be impossible. Like there is no way to get back up into headquarters, Joy. No way. You've been trying the whole movie to get back up there. There's no way to get back up right? Or it could just be getting your metaphor bigger, right? Like, it's not just two people talking. There's a hurricane outside and it's ripping the roof off or whatever, right? Like, it might just be that the metaphor of what they have to face in Act 3 is not big enough. You're not testing them. Maybe the test isn't big enough. You're protecting them. We often do protect our main characters because they're us. But your job as the author is to do the opposite, your job is to throw everything you can at them. I, you should be wondering while you're writing. I have no fucking idea how they're going to get out of this one. Because <laughs> if you're wondering, so will your reader.
2: I think you're right, though, Meg, that like, what situation feels insurmountable, despite the protagonist learning something, they're challenged. So even if it's a small emotional moment, it has to feel absolutely insurmountable to that character. The ending will feel big in any context because that character has to overcome, it has to be a profound act of bravery, I think. And
0: hopefully it's probably also about relationship. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if we think about, you know, I'm trying to get sadness up there for Riley. It's this relationship I need to win, right? We were just talking about, I don't remember if I'm talking to my son or these guys about, you know, I was reminding my son that in Rocky, he loses the fight. But it's all about his relationship with his girlfriend that you care about, right? That's what he's won right so i have to desperately want that relationship in that big moment too right if you just have fucking aliens invading without the relationship of the people fighting them is really what we care about right and is this man who's so selfish finally going to do a selfless act right that's the stuff we care about we like they want the spectacle of it but what you care about is the relationships
2: And don't you think the thing they do is something that they would never in a million years do in Act 1? Yeah, you have to look, yeah, if
0: they're a transformative character, you've picked something that they have to do, not say, do in Act 3, that they never, ever, ever could have done in Act 1. Because they've had to go through this Act 2 change to be able to do that. Right? If it's transformative, they're not always.
3: All right, I see a question over here. Name and question, please. Hi, I'm Tati. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what makes a good midpoint and what should be happening to a character between the midpoint and the end of the second act.
2: And we do have a full uh, episode pair on this in the podcast feed as well. But no, answer it here, but I'm just saying. I, Can as we a talk producer, about midpoints in the podcast?
0: I do, hate Because we have the two
2: parts. Structure so as a producer, I have to I shamelessly them. plug our show. We really get into midpoint. this. Episodes five and six in the feed. Check it out.
0: I hate midpoints.
1: I don't uh, midpoints make me Okay, shaky. so
0: midpoint generally is a big shift in the plot. Narratively, you've got generally, you know, this is the kind of stuff that my brain tries to talk to me about. The antagonist is going to amp this fucking thing up. It, I don't care if that antagonist is a hurricane. Whatever. What you thought was bad before or hard is you've not even seen anything yet, what this antagonist is going to do. What the conflict just goes through the roof. But something's also happening with relationship in there. Like if you're doing a rom-com, that's when they have sex, right? Like something in the relationships has shifted now, right? I do I for me personally, I don't think there's any rules and I don't think you create from books or you don't create from that, but I think once you've got your play up and you're trying to figure out why something doesn't work, it's good to go to books like Save the Cat or whatever. I don't care. Figure, I mean, any tool is valuable if it works, right? And I do like his phrase that 2A is the fun in games. It's still fun. It's still fun this conflict, right? You're still beating them up. I mean, Nemo's, I mean, Marlon's still being chased by sharks. And by the way, I I just had to do this in my own work. Andrew Stanton's great advice about exposition is if you have to do people talking out exposition, they better be chased by sharks. (laughs) And he's right, right? Because they're screaming about, wait a minute, you can read? Yes, I can read, but there's sharks chasing them. So there's still something fun to happen, right? Um, So 2A is that relationship, and it's still kind of fun, and you're learning, but in a kind of fun, poppy way. Once you've hit the midpoint, that 2B, that's a fucking hard. It's hard. It's really hard now. Because what you're trying to do is your character has woken up enough to shift that main relationship and start to see the truth of what they need to learn. Right? So if we, Nemo's the easiest. You start with that opening. Why? Because you're setting the belief, which is the world out there is really fucking dangerous off this reef, and I can't handle it. Right? Act two is are you sure? Because there's turtles out here, and they're not scary, and they're kind of beautiful. And yeah, it's really dangerous, but you survived those sharks, right? And really, what you're afraid of is this relationship and trusting her. And isn't that really what is broken, right? So he's starting to learn that. Act two is literally like, you're, you're wrong. You're, the belief is wrong. Learn. Look at this. Look at it this way. Look at it this way. And then at the midpoint, you know, he's shifting, right? And he's starting to trust her more. But what you're going to do to them is they're waking up just enough for you right before the end of act two to test them now so hard at such an intense physical, emotional level that they revert all the way back to their act one self. They go blind because they just can't do it. If you think about joy... Joy has started to appreciate sadness. She's started to see new sides of her. She's starting to understand they actually have the same favorite memory. Sadness is helping what's happening. This is not the sadness I know. And then everything is crashing around Joy. Literally everything is physically crashing. And if she doesn't fucking get up there, she's gonna lose her kid. And so she gets in that tube and here comes sadness trying to get in there and Joy goes, no, you cannot touch these core memories. That's a first act mistake, man. So the gods of the storytelling gods go, you're not done. We're gonna take everything away and we're gonna stick you in the dump and you're gonna disappear. So the end of act two is whatever they were afraid of in act one, it's happened. And it's worse than they could have ever imagined. They've lost their goal, they've lost their need, they've lost their main relationship. They've lost everything that they gained why? Because for your brain to really change, you've got to be stripped of every preconceived notion that you have about life and yourself. All the way down to the bottom. And that's when they wake up. So that act to be is about getting them to a place that they will wake up by beating the shit out of them. Now, I'm using animation. There's very quiet character movies that do... I mean, Blue does the exact same thing. Because Kieslowski's blue, so it can be an indie film, it can be character stuff, it doesn't matter. You know, she's trying to stay asleep and he is just banging in at her with relationships and color and music, right? And she just keeps trying to shut it down, shut it down, and then he just fucking pummels her. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, very helpful,
2: thank you. Any other questions? All right, awesome. Name and question.
1: Hi, I'm Kanani. Hi. Uh, what advice do you have for when you're writing like more of a tragedy? Like when they are specifically failing, like we're building up to this big moment and like yet again, like they're failing. Like without it just being I mean it is a tragedy, but like just any advice on that. Because I feel like I keep getting stuck on that where it's it's not enough or it's too much or it seems over the top or Just thought. Tragedies, in
0: essence, are what I'm talking about. So they have a moment at that end of act two to wake up, and they choose not to. So now their third act is going down. I mean, Godfather's the greatest tragedy. You're watching a conscious person go unconscious. It's a tragedy. But you have her to mark it. You have Diane Keaton's character to mark the shift. Right? It's very hard to make us, the audience, the tragic character. Because we, pro- we would probably wake up right now. And so we zoom out of them and watch them make a choice that takes them down. So generally you might want a character who's been with them or coming in and out that can now hold the audience character. Diane Keaton becomes the audience character at the end of that movie. He's closing the door on us. Because he's gone so far from us now. And it's been fascinating to watch him go, but it would be interesting to see in that movie when when Coppola's choosing that shift. Right? So that could be, I've never written a tragedy, but that would be, I would study The Godfather, like my Bible.
2: It's probably like, what's the punishment for the character refusing to wake up? What are the consequences? Because act three is the fulfillment of this character waking up in a non-tragic film. And I think in a tragedy, it's what are the, like in Don't Look Up, you know, the consequences are the world ends. And, of course, Leo and... I liked that movie. I know critics weren't necessarily a fan. I but love it. I love it, too. And I think Leo and J-Law, they wake up, but no one else does. So it seems about, like, consequences and punishment. Right, right? but
0: look what they get because they woke up. They get to end their lives together yeah. with family, saying they do it all over again. Like, they end well. And the people who don't wake up do not end well. Because mm-hmm. there's a moral code here right so it's about you know what they choose do they not end well you know and Michael Corleone states in the first act what his goal is which is that's my family Kate that's not me so it's a tragedy that he can't even see that that's gone if I've watched that scene with uh, her a lot and if it's a very dark scene meaning it's wood paneling it's actually hard to see but there is a Pacino knows what's happening you can see when she's asking him, but did you kill him? Did you do it? You can see that boy he was at the wedding flash over Pacino's face as if there's a chance he might tell her the truth and that he's lost. And then it submerges and he goes, no, because he's lying to her. So it's really understanding the psychology of that tragic figure and what why they can't break, why they can't... What is that, What is the cost of them waking up that they would rather not? Mm. What is the cost? He has gotten a tremendous amount of power now. He would lose his whole family. They are all depending on him. And the truth is he wants people to walk in and kiss his ring.
2: Right? And don't look up, it's money. You know, it's literally money matters more than our lives. And that's the, pr- the thesis
4: of that movie. So. I love
0: that money, she's like, oh yeah, right, my son. Like, she's so gone. Right. Like I mean, she's a sociopath, but yeah. it's amazing.
4: Yeah. I was wondering if you had any advice for once uh, you've, you, you have something written or, you know, like right now I don't have anything like uh, that I want to anybody to see, but I'm writing for quantity at the moment. So Good. It's a lot of Good. barf, lots of barf. Good. Um, but yeah, once I have something that doesn't feel like barf, and maybe it's something that I want to get out there, like what's, what's the next step for.
0: By out there, do you mean like the business out there,
4: yeah. or yeah. like what even do you want to do? What do you, you want to make a TV movie? or, movie? or write, Writing, directing, and yeah, no, well, it's feature. Features? Yeah. yeah. Features. But yeah. I, I mean, I went to film school 10 years ago. I've been doing a lot of things since then that are not in the industry. Great, you so have I'd amazing
1: like, experience. I got Good for you. Some
4: stuff. Uh, yeah, but yeah, so like just some advice on, yeah. What, do you think what it's you like do? a
0: very expensive movie or is it something that you could actually make? It, like is
4: they're, it? They're, no, none of them are very expensive. No. They're not.
0: So because if you have visual effects and all that, you know, it's a bigger, it's right. a different yeah. road than if it's a true indie film and you can make it. I mean, streamers are now, I mean, who knows? It changes every day. But they are making more indie films. They are doing some. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that's not possible to get a real buyer to give you the money. Um, you know, that is the, the trick for directors is the the catch 22 of the financiers want a piece of talent on it but that talent is being inundated by <laughs> directors and indie scripts so they don't do them. So it becomes this six degrees of separation of or the mathematical equation of, You know, you're not going for the A star because you can't even get near them, but you can get enough B and C stars that the financiers can sell that foreign, right? Because there's enough name value, blah, blah, blah. Like, it becomes this mathematical game. But I would say for female directors, there's more opportunity right now, which, you know, even five years ago I couldn't have said. They really are looking for female directors. I think they are looking to finance female directors. I think it's a good time. Ten years ago, this would have been the opposite. You would have had a harder time because you're a female. But like I know there's a funding company in San Francisco that specifically funds female directors. So it really becomes, for you, about the script. And if you have any shorts or anything to show your work as a director and a visual filmmaker. Um, if you don't, I would make one you know, um, just so we can see visually what your language is as a director. Um, but it really becomes about the, that script grabbing people, that of all the scripts they're gonna get, this is the one. And that's not always because it's the best, it might just be so tapping into something, or like The Babadook, right? Like, I remember reading The Babadook when I was a consultant at Screen Australia, and boy, the notes that script was getting. And I just wrote back to my handler. I was like, I get it. I get it. There's a lot wrong with this script. But holy shit, you got to let her make this movie. You got to let her make this movie. It's crazy good. Like, what she's trying to tap into about motherhood and this monster is so interesting. And look at her short. Like, okay, the script's kind of whatever. And I don't, they probably went on and fixed the script. But at the time, I was like, you cannot let these notes kill this thing. It's There's something in here because she was brave enough to talk about a taboo subject that nobody wants to talk about, but not everybody wants to be a mom or thinks they're very good at it, which is, you know, moms are the final frontier of the fucking third rail, don't talk about it. Everybody wants their mommy to love them, right? So like like digging deep into your guts and being daring with that script doesn't mean there's not a lot of sugar but that you're really digging into something that oh, I can feel it when I read it. That's the work. And I'm glad you're doing a lot of vomiting because I promise you that stuff I'm talking about is coming up in that, those dreams.
1: Are you asking literally though, like how do I get my script into someone's hands to read it? Well,
4: yeah, that as
1: well, because I
4: mean, <laughs> but I do know that there are a few companies are, are that are looking to help finance uh, female directors and stuff like this so it's just about getting your script to you know those people and yeah but one one more question about like as far as genre like how important it is is it to stick to a genre because sometimes I'm just like jumping from horror to psychological thrillers to uh uh adventure to family like you know so like how important is it that you're, well, they, you're, like, they are going to want to brand you because
0: yeah. that's just, it's a marketplace, right? Yeah. But like my brand isn't genre driven. My brand is emotional characters. So that can work in animation, that can work in a family, that could work in a thriller that, you know, I get brought in sometimes when the movies aren't working and they're like, fucking, nobody cares about this main character. We're in post. You can't touch anything in visual effects. We can shoot two and a half scenes. What the fuck are we going to do, right? Because I'm kind of known as someone who can pull up the emotion But generally, for a director, I think it's slightly different. Um, To me, horror versus psychological thriller, that's all the same bucket. You can do a family horror. You can do a family thriller. Like, you can put comedy. Like, it's still all in the same bucket. You know what I mean? It's that I think they can see that visually you can create tension. You can create heart-stopping stuff. You can make me wonder what's real. Whatever you're doing. I don't know. Um, But generally... Just be sure you're not jumping because it's a way to avoid rewriting.
1: It can feel like I don't want to be put in a box. I have a lot of stories to tell, but I think as you're starting out, you need to establish something. A you can system, change later. So you can change later, right? So I, I'm in animation. I've been in animation for a very long time. I just did a kid's show, but the space I want to get into that I've been selling shows in, but nothing is getting picked up yet that I keep writing in is this sort of like half hour drama comedy space. So I keep just, I'm gonna write another one, and another one. So like, I'm proven, I can write, I can do all these things, but like, how about this too? You know, but you can't, I can't totally divorce myself from, I come from animation.
0: Well, and the world's going to take you on your own path, right? Like, you're going to make your movie, and it's going to be a psychological thriller, and then they're going to give you, then your, your agent's going to say, oh, my God, you can do an episode of this family thriller TV show, which then makes you meet the actress, and suddenly you're, you can start to branch out because you're doing television, and then you can do that comedy feature. Like, it starts to move, right? But you have to start somewhere
2: sometimes when people are asking about genre they're really asking about logline sometimes or they're asking about something more high concept so i often find that with first features or indies there's a really rich emotional theme but there may be a lack of story and that's what feels genreless. i think the matt lieberman episode we talked about was really helpful here because he really challenges us as writers to think about something that we can sell in a couple sentences, you know. And of course there's much more going on, but what's the poster? What's the trailer? You know, what are the cuz those that will that will push you even if it doesn't push you toward quote genre, it will push you towards a container that helps I think elevate what you're doing. Yeah, I was at
0: the Sundance Lab on the producer side and there was this huge producer there. I mean, he's been around forever and just really really good. And this young producer is pitching her movie that she's trying to sell. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know what you're talking about. And she tried again. And he was like, I still can't follow it. And she tried again. And he goes, wait a minute. Is this Scarface in a high school? And she goes, yes! And he goes, that's what you're selling. Well, I don't know. You see, you got to find... What are you doing? What are you doing that I can, I get it, that I could make a poster? Again, you don't create from this. This is mm-hmm. not what you do after the vomit draft, but it, sometimes it can help you to think yeah. like this. This is where we're going. It's a movie. They're well, going to make a poster. you on the
2: WGA podcast, Meg, the genre moment that broke inside out open. Do you mind sharing that? I thought like the well, design, yeah. Well, yeah, we
0: were just trying to figure out the movie and we, you're constantly having to pitch to brain trusts or other directors and I don't remember where we were, we were pitching cards and Andrew Stanton's sitting in the room and he's looking at the cards and he's looking at the cards and he goes, oh, you're doing a disaster movie. And I was like, oh my God, we're doing a disaster movie. That is so helpful. Because suddenly disaster movies have tenants. They, yeah, I don't have to follow every one, but suddenly, oh, I, oh, we're doing a disaster movie. I get it, this is what we're doing. It has certain kinds of stakes, certain kinds of ticking clock. Like it does help you these kind of templates to get in, to, to, to help you
3: form that form. Um, so I was wondering, with if you're a first-time screenwriter and you have finished a feature, are, is it more marketable? Is it easier to break in if you have done it as a collaboration, like if you have a partner um, who you've written the, the script with? And I'm curious about that. And second, I'm just curious about your practice. Like, do you a lot, like discipline-wise, do you allot certain hours each day to it? Because life is complicated, and it seems to me like if you're pitching. And you're writing, just I'm like, how are, there, how are there enough hours in the day? So I'm also curious about that.
1: <laughs> there are not enough hours in the day. Um, I don't think I have any specific advice about what's better to do, whether to have a partner or not, because I think everybody has their own path. Like I don't feel prepared to advise you on that.
0: It doesn't help you get your script out there in the world or no, not. I mean, it helps you when you're on those crazy phone calls getting notes and you're like, and you could big eye like, look you, at like you can look at them like is this really happening and they can be like this is really happening So a partner is just more about your process and yeah. if you want it and it's a whole other magilla right and it, it's a it's a big deal because you have to truly be able to have a partner and do your styles fit and are you just repeating each other or are you bringing different things and it's a whole thing
3: There's a person that um, I have thought might be a good part like one of the I'm starting to do some sketch comedy and writing stuff like that and I'm noticing just as a lonely person like a writer who's like often alone, and I feel like that's helped me develop as an artist. And, but I'm like, I want to talk to people. I want to bounce things off people. Yeah, and no, I that's, find it, that's yeah. a really
0: good reason. I mean, I sometimes have partners and sometimes I don't. I do both. And I do like the bouncing off and back and forth. So, same. Absolutely. Especially for comedy. Yeah, try it.
1: I think it's important when you're working with a partner, or choosing to work with a partner or by yourself, asking yourself, is it a crutch? Mm-hmm. Right? Because I like to work with a partner because I don't like to be alone. I like to talk it all out. But sometimes that means I might defer to that partner and be like, oh, that's, that's what you want, right? And, or like uh, instead of, because I, it's not mine, it's ours, right? And so it's a different story. And so it's a different collaboration. But
0: if you're going to do a story with a partner, you better really give it up because it ain't going to be just what you want. Yeah. It's going to be a third thing. Yes. So if it's your like heart story and, yeah, don't do that. Because it's going to change and be something, a third thing. And, and what was
3: the other part of your question? Like your your dis, the way you discipline yourself oh. to, to put out so much writing, to be prolific in my job. I have pitch. to write. Yeah, every it's day, called no panic. It,
0: I I have due dates. I panic. I have I, I am on such a deadline right now that to come here, I got up and was in the seat by eight a.m. and wrote till three without stopping, so that I could get in the car and drive three hours here and be here today. Because the the pages are fucking due, man. Inspired or not, they're due. If so I'm not sit inspired, out.
1: I just start writing.
0: Yeah, just start writing because you'll get inspired. Fear's a really good way to inspire I, you. But I've also been in the position of I have babies and I say I want to be a writer, but I'm not writing because I have these babies and that's a great excuse to not write. And then it's literally just the discipline of 20 minutes. Like How long can you give it every day? because it does build, it will build up, it will build up. And that is just um, the discipline of who's gonna make it and who's not. Yeah, I think you have to decide, this is my profession. Nobody's paying for me to do it, but this is my profession. It's not my hobby, it's my job. And your job means you have to do so much writing a day. I personally think, for me, I know when my brain is the most fresh is in the morning. And then I can do my two hours and feel good about the rest of the day and versus I'm at the grocery store and I didn't write and the, you know, that monster is starting to build of self-loathing because you haven't done it versus just get up and write from 7 to 9 and then go on with your day and just do it. Like, it's your job. As of right now, I'm ordaining all of you. It's your job. You have to do it. So... All the excuses you have, what's more important than this? This is your dream, you guys. This is your dream. You're an artist. You've been chosen by the universe. What is more important? Nothing. Says so my, as my son walks in and is like, really? No. <laughs> of course your family comes first. I will tell you, I had to go to Pixar and leave my kids who are in elementary school. And I would get on a 7 a.m. flight on a Monday morning, and I would come back Thursday or Friday.
1: But you had And they were me. without me,
0: for, and I, but I had you. But I, I was without my kids for a week, for a year. And I, one day, was able to go up a little bit later, and so I took my son to school, who's here now at 18. At the time, he was in third grade. And I started crying because I felt like a terrible mother because this is the other problem for women especially. You are damned if you don't write, and you're damned if you do. But my kid looked up to me and he said, why are you crying? I'm like, because I got to go to Pixar. And like, I just feel like a terrible mom. Like, you're my kid. You're the most important thing to me in the whole world. And I'm leaving you. And he goes, well, mom, you know, I think you should go. Because when I'm an adult, I want my family to want me to get my dreams. And I want you to get your dreams. So go. You're giving things up to sit and write, but if that's a person or a relationship, they want you to get your dream. Of course they do. My son's here looking at movies. Why? Because he's watched me for years try to get my dream, so he thinks it's possible. He thinks it's possible. So do it. Do it.
2: If you enjoyed today's programming, check out the Screenwriting Life podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Thanks for tuning in to the Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.